0: would like us to return, please, to the book of Romans, to the first chapter of the book of Romans. Those of you who have been here the last two Lord's Days will know that we have begun a study of the book of Romans, and we have been looking at the first section, the first five, ver- uh, the first seven verses, which is something of a personal greeting from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Please follow with me as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he promised afore through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship and to obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake, among whom are ye also called to be Jesus Christ, to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We said that basically the material in these verses can be put under three headings. That is, that Paul speaks about himself, he speaks briefly about the gospel, and he speaks about the people at Rome. And we have considered primarily from verse 5 something of what the apostle says about himself. He wanted them to know that he was conscious, number one, that he himself was a recipient of grace, and number two, that he had received apostleship. And that he had a very clear understanding that the reason that Christ had made him an apostle was because his commission was to call the nations to the obedience of faith, not only to bring them to some empty faith, to bring them to faith, to be sure, and to the obedience which that faith would always produce. This morning, I would like us to turn our minds to what he says about the gospel. In these verses, in verses 3 and 4, and then later even in verses 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, he makes statements, summary capsule-type statements, about the gospel. He says that the gospel is the gospel of God. He says that the gospel was prophesied before time or promised aforetime through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, He wants it to be apparent to everyone that he is not a maverick on the religious scene who is coming up with a new thing, never before considered, radically different from the Jewish expectation, rather that this thing, this gospel which he has separated unto, is the very thing that God had promised from ages past to the writers of the Old Testament scriptures. Then he goes on to say that the gospel is concerning God's Son, that, whatever thing else you might think in reference to the gospel, its primary focus is upon God's Son. It's not upon law or ethics or philosophies or worldviews. The primary emphasis of the gospel is upon God's Son. Then he goes on to say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And then he says that the gospel reveals a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. And in those little capsule statements, he, he presents some wonderful truths about the gospel truths that he will indeed expand on over and over again throughout this book of Romans. This morning, I would like us to look in verses 3 and 4 concerning the statement that he makes that the gospel is concerning his son. That is, the gospel is concerning the Son of God. And what the Apostle Paul says about the gospel is, is summarized, I believe, under four headings. He is saying that this central person of the gospel, God's son, four four things. First of all, simply that he is God's eternal son. The central person of the gospel, the central object of our faith, is God's eternal son. Secondly, he says, God's eternal son took to himself human nature at a point in time. He was made of the seed of David. At a point in time, the eternal God took to himself human nature. The third thing that he says is that at a subsequent point in time the eternal God who had taken to himself human nature was exalted to a place of glory and enthronement that he was appointed or declared to be son of God with power at the resurrection. And the fourth thing that he says is that this central person is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let us look briefly At these headings and then to consider some of their implications in the first place then the central person of the gospel is god's eternal son now you might think why did he have to say that why did he have to bother with that after all he's writing to the church in rome he's not writing to the pagans in rome he's not writing to people who would be unaware of this most basic aspect of the christian gospel and yet it's the first thing he wants them to be reminded of in reference, to Christ's go- in reference to God's gospel, that it is primarily concerned with God's Son. Now, in our day, when you hear Christian songs that use the word Son, referring to Christ, or in Christian literature, or even in Christian conversation, the phrase is often used lightly with little regard to its meaning in the scriptures, but its meaning was not lightly regarded by the New Testament writers when the word son or the phrase son of God or the only begotten of the father or the only begotten son or such phrases as these, when they were used in the scriptures, they were words that were meant to convey very specific meanings. They weren't just empty phrases that could mean whatever warm sentiment caused them to mean. They were were words that meant something specific and peculiar. And when Paul writes that this is concerning his son, Everything that the scriptures categorize under that name are meant to be implied. It's like the word is like a flashcard word. Can you remember some of you when you're in your college or high school, you'd, put, you'd be studying for an exam and you'd write on flashcards some key words that were meant to stimulate your mind as to certain subjects. Well, when you see this word son or the phrase son of God, it ought to be like a flashcard that stimulates certain ideas to you. It ought to tell you, it ought to remind you rather that this one is the eternal God, When this word son of God is used, it is meant to teach us of his eternality. It is meant to teach us of his divinity. It is meant to remind us that he is the one who with his father engages in all the divine works of creation and sustaining the earth and all the rest. And of course, it is a word that is to refer to this intimate relationship, this filial relationship of father and son that exists between God the father and God the son. But it's important that we appreciate that those things are taken for granted by the Apostle Paul when he speaks about the Son of God. And if those things are not appreciated by us, then the things that he goes on to say have relatively little significance and are somewhat unimportant unless we appreciate these things about the Son of God. So let me just take a moment to turn you to some scriptures that teach us that these things are referred to by the phrase Son of God and then go on from there. Please turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I recently read a newsletter where the writer said that he thought there wasn't one out of a hundred Christians who could defend the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ in the face of Jehovah's Witness. Well, I hope... That you would defy the odds. I hope if you had to, to defend that doctrine, you would just spontaneously turn to this passage in John chapter 1. In this place, the Apostle John is writing, and he says in verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that hath been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now later on, verse 14 and following, you'll see that the word is clearly identified as the Son of God. But notice what is true of him. This word was from the beginning. The Son of God was with God, according to verse 1. And more miraculously and wondrously... And if it were not that we believed in the supernatural God, we would say incredibly. But you have the next statement that the word actually was God. It's not only that the word existed from the beginning. It's not only that he was with God from the beginning, but that he actually was God. According to verse 3, all things that were made were made through the Son. Now you look down further in verse 14 and we read this, and the word "...became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth." Verse 18, "...no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him." Now notice the change of tenses in all of this. Those first verses that we read were referring to eternal things in reference to the Lord Jesus, in reference to the Son of God. Then you read what happened to him at a point in time, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And then you read what was contemporary with the Apostle John's time, that is, that he is in the bosom of the Father. That he had declared the Father, and that at John's point in time, as well as on our own, that he is in the bosom of the Father. He was eternal God. With God, did the works of God, came in the form of flesh, and now is with God again. Now all of that is to be subsumed under the idea of Son. In John chapter 5, verses 16 through 29, you read again of the Lord Jesus referring to himself as the Son of God. He speaks of God being his own Father, and the Jews in that place are determined to kill him because he makes himself equal with God. And in that passage, in John chapter 5, Jesus goes on to to state how he, in fact, is equal with God. He is equal with God in that he and God do the same works. That is, they both give life, they both raise the dead, they both judge at the end, they do the same works. They are equal in that they are equally divine. And they are equal in that they are both worthy of equal honor. In John chapter 5 and verse 23, he says that these things are so in order that all may honor me even as they honor the Father. Well, that was all subsumed under his idea of what it is for him to be the Son of God. He was equal with the Father. He did the works of the Father. He was to be honored as the Father. And please turn to one other passage, and that would be in Hebrews chapter 1, where again we have some definitions of what it is for Jesus to be considered the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1. In verses 1 and 2, we read, God, having of old times spoken unto the fathers in the prophets, by divers portions, and in divers manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then you have verses on down through the end of the chapter which describe this Son And I would like only to bring two points to your minds, and that is that when the writer speaks of Jesus being God's Son, he is referring, number one, to his essential deity, and number two, to his divine activity. Look in verse 3. Who is this Son? Well, he is the effulgence of God's glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power. Think for a moment as to what it is to make an image of the invisible God. Caesar made images of himself. He was a tangible man who could be seen. A sculptor could look at his face and sculpt out a likeness. A painter could look at his face and paint a likeness. But God is a spirit. Jesus is the image of God, not in any physical sense. But he is the the embodiment of God himself. To see Christ is to see God, not just to see a likeness of God. He is the effulgence, he is the shining forth of that which constitutes God, of the glory and majesty of God. Look in verse 8. But of the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Well, who's being referred to? The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is said to be God. It's an essential part of his sonship. He's not to be considered as some kind of a derivation from God, that you have the Father who is God, and then this derivation, the Son, that is something less than God. He is God. It's of the essence of the definition of his being the Son of God. And, of course, according to the last part of verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 10, he is, as God, doing the works that only God can do. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is the sustainer of life. He's the one that holds everything together. He does the things that only God can do. Well, what's the point of all this? It is to come back to Romans chapter 1 and to appreciate that when Paul speaks about the gospel being a message concerning God's son, it is to be understood at the outset that he is referring to someone who is preexistent, who didn't just begin when Joseph and Mary had a baby, This son is the son of God, not merely the son of Joseph and Mary. So we're to understand that he's speaking about someone who is preexistent, who is eternal, who is God himself, who does the works of God, and who is indeed to be honored as God the Father. They are both eternal, the Father and the Son. They are both absolutely and equally divine. They are both engaged in divine works. They both share the same honor, and they both delight. In a perfect and harmonious relationship of love and affection with one another, when Paul carefully this son carefully this son, who is it is to be appreciated that it is to be appreciated that he is speaking of this being, the eternal God, the one who is eternally pre-existent as God, who had no beginning and no end, absolutely equal with the Father, in all perspectives. All right, the second thing then that he says about the central person of the gospel is that God's son, God's eternal son, took to himself human nature at a point in time. Now look at the passage in Romans chapter 1 verse 3. Concerning his son who was born of the seed of David. That phrase that is translated was born can very well be translated was made or has become. It is referring to a point in time that something happened. Here you had the eternal Son of God, always existing. But at a point in time, he became something. He was made something. Or in the language of our English translations, he was born. We read that same idea in John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word, which existed forever with the Father, became flesh. At a point in time, he became flesh. We read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 14, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born or made or beginning out from a woman. That was a historical event that was being referred to in those passages. Well, that's the idea here. This message of the gospel is concerning an eternal being who was made something, who was born to be something at a point in time. Now notice it says he was born of the seed of David. When the eternal son of God came into the earth, he came into the world through Mary into the royal family of David. Now that that is full of significance, but for the purposes for our purposes this morning, let me just draw to your minds two things that I think are important in the apostle Paul's mind in reference to Jesus being born of the seed of David. In the first place, it reminds us that this Son is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. It refers back to what Paul had said, that this was promised aforetime by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets in the Holy Scriptures said that one day someone from the house of David would come and be an everlasting king. Some day, from the house of David a king would come that would rule over his people and rule over a kingdom that had no end or limit. This king would be an absolute monarch whose will would be absolutely done and he would rule with absolute authority and elicit absolute obedience from his subjects. And Paul wants them all to know at the outset that this one of whom the gospel speaks is a human being. He is the eternal son of God who became a human being of the seed of David. He is the fulfillment of that great promise of a king to come. But in the second place, Paul's making reference to Je- to Jesus being born of the seed of David connects the Lord Jesus with actual physical parentage. He wasn't a phantom. Stork didn't deliver him. He didn't just drop out of the skies. He was born of a woman Of the seed of David, Mary, being in that royal lineage, he was born of her. And he received from her the same things that every child receives from his mother without sin. He had her genes. He was influenced by her genetic makeup. He had something of her physical features. Perhaps he even had something of her her disposition. He was from her. And to say that he is born of the seed of David connects him with physical, flesh-and-blood parents. He was not a phantom. He was a real human being who came into the world in in the bloodline of this old family, the family of the household of David. Now notice the next phrase. It says, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, or perhaps we could translate that with reference to the flesh. He was born of the seed of David with reference to the flesh. Many places in the Bible we are told that when when Christ came into the earth he took to himself flesh. We've already referred to some of them. What does that mean? Well, it, it does mean that he took to himself bones and muscles and sinews and blood and all the physical parts that you might think of in reference to flesh. But it means more than that. It means simply that he took to himself human nature. He took to himself everything that is true of humanity without sin. He took to himself everything that was true of Adam and Eve in their perfect condition. He took to, them, he took to himself human nature in all of its fullness. Whatever a, parent receive, uh, whatever a child receives from his parents without sin, that is what Jesus took when he took to himself flesh when he took to himself human nature. Whatever it is that makes your children different from the monkey, whatever it is that makes your children different from the stone, whatever it is that makes your child different from an angel, whatever it is that makes your child different from God and makes him distinctly human without sin, those things were given to Christ when he was born of the seed of David according or with reference to the flesh. Now let us just appreciate what Paul has said in these few words before we go on. He has said in the first place that the message is concerning this Son, the eternal divine Son, who was born or was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now he didn't say that you had the eternal Son who stopped being the eternal Son and now became something else. He is still God. He is still God. He is still divine. He is still all of those things. But now with that, he has taken to himself flesh. And in that context, he lives as an absolutely unique person. For the 30 some years that he lived upon the earth, he was eternal son and the seed of David, having taken to himself flesh. The two were there together. And you often hear very poetic phrases used by writers and preachers about this about this subject because it is indeed a mystery that is incomprehensible. It is that which serious thinkers have tried to fathom throughout the ages and have never been able, of course, to fathom such a, such a true mystery. But it is true nonetheless. And in this context of being eternal God, eternal Son, and yet at the same time being fully human and fully man, it is in this context that he lived. It is in this context that he was first born and nourished as a little infant. It was as God and man that he performed miracles. It was as God and man that he, he entered into our feelings and began to understand what it was like for a human being to suffer, for a human being to experience sorrow. For a human being to experience desertion and anguish and opposition and deprivation, as God and man, he learned to do all of those things. It was as God and man that he obeyed the law. It was not like he came into the world and absolutely God, without any of the weaknesses of flesh, looked at the law of Moses and just kept it point after point after point. It was as a human being. It was as a human being subject to temptations, subject to opposition, subject to discouragement. It was as a human being that he obeyed God's law and kept God's law not only in external conduct but in the very recesses of the motives of his heart. It was in this context that he died on the cross as eternal son incarnate. And it was in this context that he was raised And in the heavens, he is still eternal son in human nature, glorified human nature, not subject to the weaknesses and the decay and all the rest that was true of him in the days when he walked upon the earth, but nonetheless, he is still in human nature. And thus it is that he continues to have a sympathy with us, Thus it is that he continues to understand us and thus it is that he is able in a most wonderful and peculiar way to minister succor to us because he's still God in human nature. All right, the third thing then that the Apostle Paul says about this great person is that at a subsequent point in time, that is, subsequent, after he took to himself human nature, at a subsequent point in time, God's incarnate Son was enthroned in power where he presently reigns. Look, please, at verse 4. Let us read again, verse 3. This gospel is concerning his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And now, verse 4 who was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now look at this phrase that he was declared to be the son of God with power. The word that is translated declared could be translated to appoint or to designate, but it does not miss the sense really to say declared. That is, that at a certain point, at the resurrection, something happened. Christ was officially appointed. Christ was designated, or in that sense declared, to be son of God with power. Now appreciate that at the resurrection... It was not simply that he was declared to be son of God. There are some well-meaning people who come to this passage and say that the fact that Jesus was born of Mary, of the seed of David, is proof that Jesus is, is is human. And they say that the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is proof that he is divine, and they use this text. They say it's at the resurrection that he was declared to be son of God. It was at the resurrection that he was proven to be divine in the same way that at his birth he was proven to be human. That's not the point of this passage. It doesn't say that at the resurrection he was declared to be Son of God. It says at the resurrection he was declared to be Son of God with power. He was always known to be the Son of God. He was declaring that he was the Son of God all along. And even his miracles were meant to be demonstrations that in fact he was the Son of God, that God had come into the earth and was doing things to exhibit his mastery over the earth. It's not at the resurrection that he is declared to be son of God, but son of God with power. And it's this event, which it's this reason that causes the resurrection to be so central in the preaching of the apostles. The point is that by his birth, he did take flesh and voluntarily submitted himself to a time of relative weakness and to a time of relative humiliation. It lasted for 33 years roughly 33 years and during that time he was tired and during that time he did get weary and during that time he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and when he was an infant he depended upon his mother's milk and upon his mother's care he had to have food to eat or he would have died he was a man who was subject to the weaknesses and frailties of our flesh but when he died and was raised up that ended the humiliation ended The weakness ended. The dependence on the sort of things that we are dependent upon, such as food and shelter and water, that all ended. The weakness and humiliation was over at the resurrection. And at the resurrection, he's publicly demonstrated to everyone to be son of God with power. No longer son of God in humiliation. No longer son of God who endured weakness. But son of God with absolute power. And it's that idea that is stressed throughout the scriptures. You have in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 this statement, He raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and every name that is named and put all things in subjection unto his feet. That wasn't true in the days of his humiliation. It wasn't true. But at the resurrection... It was true. That was not that he was less God during the days of his humiliation, but it is true that he counted not some of the some of the elements of his godhood to be something to be grasped after, some of the trappings that went along with that godhood, the exercise of some some of the exercise of that power. He counted that some not something that he had to grasp. And so it says in the scriptures that he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, is the literal translation of the passage in Philippians chapter 2, and took to himself the form of a servant. And being made in the likeness of men and found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient even unto death. But then you read this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Wherefore, because he was obedient, because he thoroughly submitted himself in humiliation to obedience to the ways of God unto death, Wherefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus was upon the earth, everybody was not bowing to him. When Jesus was upon the earth, he was in a voluntary state of humiliation, but he has now been raised. And now he is son of God with power. And in that posture, literally every knee shall bow to him. No more weakness and humiliation. It is at the resurrection that he is declared to be son of God with power. And it is in Matthew chapter 28, after the resurrection, that the Lord Jesus can say to his disciples, all authority for all power in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. Please look at just one passage, and that's in Acts chapter 2, the statement by Peter in reference to the effects of Jesus being raised from the dead, that is, the public effect of that great event. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, the Lord Jesus has been raised, you remember, having been raised, the exalted Christ in the throne of heaven had sent down the Holy Ghost upon his church. And the evidence of that was that when the people of God received the Holy Spirit, they spoke the gospel in all these foreign languages. And people that had come to Jerusalem from all the different, la- all the different places of the earth were hearing the gospel in their own language by people that didn't know their own language. It was, a, it was a marvelous display of God's power. Then Peter stands up and preaches the gospel to them. And notice now what he says. He says in Acts chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 32, This Jesus did God raise up, whereof we all are witnesses, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this which ye see and hear, that this being the Spirit coming, and they're speaking in these foreign languages. And now he says in verse 36, in reference to this, in reference to the resurrection, in reference to Jesus' enthronement, in reference to Jesus sovereignly sending the Holy Spirit, let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the name that was given to the Lord when he was born it's the name that is associated with his humanity he was a he was there was no eternal jesus jesus became when the son of god was born this jesus this human being this one who was the son of god incarnate you crucified but by virtue of the resurrection notice god has made it obvious god has made it known god has declared that he is what both Christ, that is Messiah, and Lord, Master, King, Ruler. He is no longer in humiliation or in weakness. He is no longer voluntarily laying aside some of the exercises of his power. By virtue of the resurrection, he has been exalted and declared, in Paul's language, to be Son of God with power. Now notice in our passage in Romans chapter 1, it says that he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, which in some ways is parallel to the statement that he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And again, that phrase that is translated according to might possibly be translated in reference to, and the idea would be this, that having been born, his existence was indeed in the sphere of flesh Having been raised, the exercise of his power is in the sphere of the mighty operations of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness. When he was born, it was in reference to his taking human nature, flesh. But when he was raised, it was in reference to receiving the fullness of the spirit and power and the exercise of that power in the work of the Holy Ghost. If, you, if your Bibles are still open to that passage in Acts chapter 2, I think that is exactly what Peter is saying in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. By being therefore by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this which you see and hear. Now Jesus was no stranger to the Holy Ghost before the resurrection. As is obvious, The Spirit came to him and filled him at his baptism. The Spirit was upon him, enabling him as a human being to do great exploits for God. But it was at this point, when he was raised up, that he received the Spirit and sent the Spirit to his church. It was in reference to the Spirit of holiness that he is declared to be the Son of God with power. It is at the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45, that he became a life giving spirit. It is in reference to this that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the Lord, Jesus, is the Lord of the Spirit, and he even says that the Lord is the Spirit. That in this place of exaltation, Jesus is so closely identified with the work of the Spirit's power that he is said to be the Lord of the Spirit and indeed to be the Spirit. So when you come back to our passage here in Romans chapter 1, he is saying that this eternal Son, who at a point in time took to himself human flesh, at a second point in time was raised from the dead and declared to be Son of God with power in reference to or in the realm of the workings of the Spirit of holiness. You see, his kingly rule, his come, this kingly rule was this kingly rule was not what the Jews expected. It was a rule which was not in the sphere of military and political and legal power. It was a rule that was in the sphere of the spirit of holiness. It was not a rule that was enforced by armies or police or by legislatures. It was a rule that was enforced by the powerful workings of the Spirit of God. It was a rule not so much over political realms as it is a rule over the hearts and minds of his subjects. And Paul is making it wonderfully clear to them that this great eternal Son of God, who was humiliated at a point in time and came into the world as the seed of David, the King, has been raised and exalted to the highest place of power to work and to rule in the realm of the Spirit of Holiness. Now, what does this actually mean? Being raised up and being so enthroned in this posture, what does he actually do with this authority? Well, he does several things, and let me list only some of them. In the first place, having been raised to this great position of power, he administers the work of the Holy Spirit The works of the persons of the Godhead are not disjointed. You don't have God the Father off doing his thing, God the Son doing something else, and God the Spirit doing another thing, and that they just happen to get together on some occasions. There is the most intimate coordination between what the Father and the Son and the Spirit do, organized by God's eternal decrees and by their single-mindedness. But it is not improper to say that one of the ministries of the exalted Lord is the administration of the work of the Spirit. That's precisely what Paul was referring to The Spirit was given to Christ at the resurrection, and Jesus sent him forth. And what is the Spirit to do under the administration of the eternal Son of God? Well, according to the Lord's words, the Spirit is sent into the world to convict men of righteousness and of sin and of judgment. The Spirit of God is sent into the world to illumine men, to take people who don't understand divine truth, and to make them understand to people who don't have an interest in divine truth and to create an interest. The Spirit is sent into the world to regenerate men or in Jesus' language to give men the new birth. The Spirit is sent into the world to create faith in the hearts of the people of God. The Spirit is sent into the world to create repentance in the hearts of the Spirit of God, in the hearts of the people of God. The Spirit is sent into the world to change dispositions and mindsets and habits and lifestyles among the people of God. And certainly the Spirit of God is sent into the world to give gifts to his people, gifts for the edification of God's people, gifts for the spread of the gospel. Well, the exalted Lord Jesus is the one who administers these workings of the Spirit in the earth. That's not all that he does in his posture of authority. In the second place, in this great place of authority, he providentially governs his people it is the great king the exalted lord jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth who organizes the events of your life it is he who organizes where you live and what people you live by and what influences come upon you and what gifts and skills and natural quote natural abilities that you have it is christ jesus who organizes that It is the Almighty King who determines who moves in beside you. It is the Almighty King who decides who it is that will come into your workplace. It is the Almighty King who providentially governs all the things that take place in your life. It is He, in the third place, in this posture of authority, who makes intercessions for His people. It is as the great, exalted Lord, who is yet a human being, it is in that posture that Jesus makes intercessions for his people and sympathizes with them and beseeches his Father for them and continually propitiates the Father and ministers as intercessor, as priest on their behalf. And it is also true that in this position of great exaltation power that the Lord Jesus will one day judge all persons in the earth. He has not left to be forever done with the earth. The fact is that is intimately Moment by moment engaged in the affairs of the earth and the affairs of his people. But there is coming a day when, from this posture of absolute power and exaltation, that he will literally crush his enemies under his feet and cast them into hell. Well, Paul's point, simply stated in this passage, is that this eternal God, who at a point in time became man, at another point in time, was raised to the highest possible place of power. Now, let me ask you the obvious question. Why is this so important? Why does God himself say, when he defines the gospel, that it is a message concerning his Son? Why does Paul say to these people who are Christians that which should be most obvious? Why have I devoted 40 minutes to a sermon on the subject? Why does it come up over and over and over and over again in the New Testament writings, these basic truths about the Lord Jesus. (coughs) There are those who speculate and say that anyone that God anointed could have been the Savior of the world. Anyone that God so endowed with the Spirit could have been and done what the Lord Jesus did. But according to this passage and to hosts of other passages, it was only Christ who was so appointed to be the Savior. The answer to the question why it is so important lies in the condition of human beings. It lies in the need that human beings have of being reconciled with God. What is it that you need as a Savior? Some of you are wonderfully united to Christ as your Savior. Some of you are not. What is it that you need as a Savior? Well, you need several things. In the first place, you need a Savior. You need one who has the authority to forgive sins. No priests can forgive sins. No religious men, no matter how filled with the Spirit, can forgive sins. No angels can forgive sins. And the Jehovah's Witnesses and their ilk who think that they do some honor to Christ, that they think that they lift him above common humanity by likening him unto an angel, do the grossest disservice to Christ. No angel has the authority to forgive sins. If you're to have a savior, it must be someone who is God and who has the authority thus to forgive sins. In the second place, if you're to have a true savior, you must have one who truly sympathizes and understands your condition. Because you are so sinful that if you are ever to be saved, it will require great sympathy, great understanding, and great long-suffering. And someone who doesn't have that sympathy and long-suffering would never be adequate to be your Savior because you're too bad. You're too inconsistent. You're too faithless. And you need a sympathetic Savior that will bear with you and endure On the basis of his sympathies. No angels are like that. No ministers are like that. Your husband or your wife is not like that. Only Christ Jesus is like that. In the third place, and perhaps more to our point, is that you need one who has power. You need one to be a Savior who has infinite power to work in you and to work in your circumstances. You see, you don't have the ability to create faith, you don't have the ability to repent, but God requires those things. You don't have the ability to pursue and obtain holiness, but God says without holiness, no man will see the Lord. You don't have the ability to break godless habits, you don't have the ability to change and to purify your mind and to bring every thought captive to Christ Jesus, but God requires that. You don't have power to do the things inside of you that need to be done nor do you have the power to do the things around you that need to be done to heal your lives. And if you're going to have a savior he must be endued with power that can only be qualified as divine power. There are no religious leaders who have ever come on the scene with that kind of power. You can look at Mohammed and Buddha and everyone that you want to consider none of them have have even maintained the idea that they had that kind of power. Christ has that kind of power. And I can't help but think that that lies at the heart of why Paul makes this such a point at the beginning. There are other things that you need to have if you're going to have a Savior. But these, I believe, are perhaps the most important. He must be one who has the authority to forgive sins. He must be one who is sympathetic with your case and will be long-suffering. And he must be one who has the ability, the power to change you and to make you a new creation and to make you acceptable unto God. Now, we're, talking, we're not talking this morning about what he would do as a sacrifice for your sin because that's not the focus of the Apostle Paul's writings at this point. That's a whole other wonderful subject. But you do need these things in a Savior. And there is no other Savior on the religious market that is what Christ Jesus is. It is a popular thing. It has been popular for many centuries for writers to speak of the importance of religion, both for society and for the individual. You'll have sociologists and political writers and students of of societies who will write about how very important it is for religion to be an influence in society because you need the transcendent values which religion will teach to the people you need to have some need to have some sense of what's right and wrong and some sense of cohesion that is beyond the rules and laws and police of the state. Now any religion they say will do. But you do need to have religion. You do need to have transcendent values. People will say that on the individual level there is tremendous power in faith, they will say. Not the object of faith, but in faith. And so you have Eastern and mystic religions who do speak about the tremendous positive effect of faith upon the individual. You have things like the Alcoholics Anonymous who make religion a very real part of their rehabilitation programs. Not Christianity, but religion. The ideas of God. It's important to have faith in something. It's important to have a higher reference point, they say. It can be God. It can be Allah. It can be the lamppost. It doesn't really matter. There's power in faith. And that's true. But Christianity isn't like that. The Christian religion isn't coming along with a series of transcendent values and saying this is what you need for your personal life or for society. Nor is it coming along and saying I will give you a mantra if you'll just meditate upon it long enough some wonderful things will happen to your life. The central part of Christianity is that there's a living Savior who is the Almighty God who lives and who can transform lives as well as forgiving sins. That's why Christianity is infinitely incomparable to other religions. It doesn't simply set forth a good lifestyle. It doesn't simply set forth a proper worldview. It is the declaration that God has come into the earth and lives in resurrection and is, is full of power to save and to change individual persons for his glory. That's the point of this passage. In real Christian preaching, The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely central. And in real Christian living, the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely central. Where you have someone who is a true Christian, he is constantly coming to Christ and trusting in Christ for pardon. Or you have a true Christian who is living as a faithful Christian, you have someone who is constantly obeying Christ in his daily life. He is someone who is constantly loving Christ and constantly worshiping Christ because he has this sense that my religion is altogether bound up in the reality that this person is alive and has changed me, and I'm his, and I obey him, and I love him. And that is the basic difference between real Christianity and these false forms of Christianity, is that we love Christ. We have been changed by the living Savior. It is central to the Christian message, and it is central to Christian experience. And the question needs to be, is the Son of God, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, is He central to you? Is He central in your life? Is it true that you have such regard for him that you know that he alone can forgive sins and so you're constantly, constantly casting your soul upon him for forgiveness and for safety? That you see him as so glorious and so good and so mighty and have, having been so effectual in your life that you're always loving him and endeavoring to obey him? perhaps more to the point for some of us, that we have such love for him and regard for him that our constant failures and sins create the greatest mournings, as we've been hearing in the adult class these last two Lord's Day mornings. Well, you see, for the real child of God, he is so central. He is loved. Lack of love is mourned. Is that true for you? Is that true for some of you children? Is it true of you that you're concerned about doing what's right and wrong because your parents are always after you to do what's right and wrong, or because your schools are always after you do what's right and wrong, or even because your conscience is always after you do what's right and wrong, or are you concerned about what's right and wrong because you love Christ and he is altogether central in your life, and your whole earnest hope is to bring pleasure to the Savior who lives and who saves you? I ask the question, Christ Jesus is central to the Christian message. Christ Jesus is central to Christian experience. Is Christ Jesus central to you? And if he is not, then it is time for you to appreciate that he will not take a corner of your life and be satisfied. You'll never go to heaven with a little bit of Jesus somewhere in the reservoirs of your life. You'll only go to heaven as he is your Lord and your Savior. And your whole faith as well as your whole life is given up to him. And if you give up your faith to him and your life to him, you'll never so please him that you earn his favor. But you'll have his favor throughout all the ages of eternity if you just turn to him and believe in him and repent of your sins. And I can't help but think that the Apostle Paul knew that he was writing to Christians and setting forth the centrality of Christ at the outset of this letter was meant for them. It was not primarily meant for those unconverted who might hear the reading of this letter. It was meant for them. Christ Jesus is central. He is the essence of the gospel. And some of those who profess to be Christians, who are always lamenting lack of faith, lack of victory, lack of usefulness, lack of grace, lack of the workings of the Spirit, can usually trace that lack back to this, that they are not making Christ central in their life. They are not trusting him. They are not conscious of who he is. They are not living for him. And he has been pushed someplace into the backwaters of their life. And if they're Christians at all, the only thing that will ever change them is for them to come to that place where nothing is more important than to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and for him indeed to be central in their lives as he is central in the Christian gospel. I would hope that for some of you today would be a day when you would ask yourself that question. Not, do I believe in Jesus, that's without definition for many of you. The question should be more practical, more pointed, more easy to answer. Is Christ central to your life? Is he the central conscious object of your hope of forgiveness with God? Is he the central conscious object of your obedience in the daily affairs of your life? May the day not end until you can all say yes. Let us pray together. Father, it is surely the most wonderful thing to consider that you have sent Christ into the world, and that you have loved human beings and sent him to take our nature, to be subject to humiliation, to endure your wrath. But how we thank you that you have raised him up and how much we would like to bring glory and honor to him. and We pray that you would help us as your people to see him as more central, to love him more dearly, to obey him more, more obviously, and truly for us to esteem him as the Apostle Paul did and as the Apostolic writers did. We pray for us who are conscious of our sins that you would please help us to more fully depend upon Christ to more fully rest our hopes and our cares upon him. But we especially ask you for some who are children and for others who are older that you please would awaken them from dullness and indifference and cause them to see the wonder of your sending Christ that you by thy almighty power Lord Jesus would give life to those whom the Father has given to you. We ask this, our great God and Father, in Jesus' name, amen.